When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So this week we lost Tom Petty, and it was a really heartbreaking loss, and I I think a lot of uh, us at Rolling Stone took it fairly personally. He was a kind of a constant presence in our lives at Rolling Stone, first in his music before any of us were music journalists, and then if you were a writer at Rolling Stone... He was someone you talked to all the time. That was the great thing about Tom Petty. I have Andy Green, Hi. my fellow writer Rolling Stone over here. And as Andy knows, Tom would get on the phone to talk about Stevie Nicks with me. He would get on the phone to talk about George Harrison. He would get on the phone to talk about his latest tour. He liked being in touch with us. He liked being part of the things that we talked to him all the time. So it's particularly sort of personal and real right Andy? yeah it's just shocking it's been four days and i'm still kind of in shock i mean he did a concert seven days before he passed away i saw i saw him twice this year i saw him back in july he looked great it's hard to just do to digest this and compute it it's really shocking he was always around i talked to him so many times and it's it's so shocking I think it says something about Tom Petty's stature that I didn't even feel the need to introduce him in any way or explain who he was. But I, you know, I will say that he's certainly was one of the great, great singer-songwriters of the rock and roll era, one of the great frontmen of the rock and roll era, also one of the great sort of pop stars, pop hit makers of the rock and roll era. And I, you know, I said on, on another show on, on Volume here that... He was one of those people who kind of erased the difference between people who like, you know, rock, quote unquote rock, and people who like pop, because he did both, and he was both, and he was really good at both, and in fact, he may have been best at making pop hits. His concise, I mean, he, he, whose greatest hits is better than Tom Petty? Yeah, it's sort of astounding. I mean, I've never quite viewed him as a singles artist, but it says something that his greatest hits album in 93 sold like 10 million records or something. I mean, he has so many great hits. So on today's show, we're going to be talking a little bit about Tom Petty. In a little bit, we're going to be joined by Warren Zanes, his biographer, who was also his friend and and knew him very well. And so we're, we're going to be playing some interview clips of us talking to Tom Petty and also talking to his bandmates in the Heartbreakers because, again, we spoke to him so often. For me, my biggest sort of in-person encounter with Tom Petty was in 2010. I was in L.A. for another story and I got word that I needed to go to Tom Petty's house immediately because he had completed a new album and he wanted to play it for us in the form of me. Uh, That album was Mojo. And I went in there knowing nothing about the album, having never heard it, and I went to his beautiful house in Malibu, which a lot of other journalists have been to and talked to. And, you know, there's the sound of running water. And, and uh, we, we sat in the studio and he was so proud and excited of Mojo. And I think that and Mojo was this album that kind of brought, brought him back to a, a sort of Jeff Beck group inspired sound. 
it was a harder rocking thing. It was very different for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and he was so psyched about it. And at that point in his career, after he'd done everything, the fact that he was like he was like really anxious to like play it for a journalist to uh, you know to to show off what he'd done. He he was he had just finished mixing it, and that that was like it was really touching. And I I caught him in this really interesting moment. And the other thing he he had to say was just what a good moment in his life that was and it, it's kind of I think touching to hear now let's let's hear him talk about just kind of where he was in his life in general and, and, and how that was going for him I don't know it's I'm just growing up <laughs> <laughs> you know as time goes by you seem to weed out the things that were making your life hard you know and bit by bit I mean I look up one day and just found myself in a nice situation and I think having a year off from yeah. the road really made a difference in my life mm. because it had always been going so fast just I mean since the beginning like, the, like you, never, you really hadn't you never had like a whole year off I remember once having a year off or twice having a year off and they were complete disasters mm. but most of the time we've been really on the move I mean even in the years off we made a record right or, you know probably did two or three things so I've you know my life just goes really fast and so this year even though we did do a lot it's just been pleasant work yeah you know, pleasant work and I'm you know my marriage is great my kids are all really sweet and uh it's a nice time to play some music. It, lo- it looks like you're on on the path to, to really do the Dylan thing and just keep fucking hitting it, you know, as as, as the years go by, which has got to be a good. Oh, I intend to hit it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. So, so yeah, that, that's both nice to hear and a little bit heartbreaking. Tom was, he was, he was hitting it. He he just kept going. He was, and on his last tour, which you got to see, and unfortunately I missed. He his last tour, which just ended, as you said, Andy, just a few days ago. Um, he was probably having the time of his life. It seemed like. Yeah, he was. He was playing really great shows. He was doing a cool suite of songs off of Wildflowers. He was just having fun. It was his fourth anniversary, so so there was no new album. So he was just playing songs out of his whole career, and it had been the same band basically for over forty years. So these so these were really like his blood brothers in a lot of ways. He loved these guys, and they loved him. And and just watching the show, you could feel that. I think it was Peter Wolf who told us uh, something that we had some word of that that Tom was experiencing some discomfort on this tour. He said hip pain. I think. He, yeah, he said hip pain. I heard something about his back, but what was clear out of all the backstage videos they post online and pictures that that there'd be a golf cart by the side of the stage that would take him that would take him to the stage and take him from the stage. And besides the moments on stage, he appeared to often be seated and he was clearly according to to peter wolf he was in lots of pain i I think it was just it was just it was just so much stress on his body from so many years that his back was going out and he was not comfortable but on stage it was it was the exact same it was as like peter wolf said when he would put the guitar on he would just snap in and just and just be alive i think one of the things we're seeing is 
how many generations Tom Petty reached because he had he wasn't one of those guys who had one decade where he no, was big three yeah. and there are very few 70s radio stars that in the mid 90s were on MTV and still doing it it's like Bruce no it's it's Springsteen to some degree it's like Neil Young and him almost it's a very unique thing and Neil barely I mean Tom had the best 90s out of any of those guys you know he because yeah. and again it's weird that you know you don't think of him as a singles artist but he he was among other things a singles artist and he he just had this effortless thing you know as other guys struggled yeah. you know and, and and women so and as as other artists veteran artists struggled to kind of keep up with changing times he yeah. would just toss out uh, last chance for mary jane yeah and and, and uh, a huge as hit. a bonus track on his greatest hits album yeah, on a, on, it's a huge hit on a song that he didn't want to record he was furious at his label they insisted that he record a brand new song for a hits album then you could turn on MTV in '93 and see Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and then Tom Petty. And it has to do with his central gift, which was the deceptive simplicity of his songwriting. Yes, because if you write these simple songs, they're durable, and they're durable as you write new ones over changing styles and 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 changing times. And I, I think he he did hit a a new kind of wind in the uh, in the 2010s um it started just before that he he reunited his original band that only people only hardcore fans and people who've seen the documentary or read the book know about so a lot of people now um but his his pre heartbreakers band mudcrutch he reunited made uh, two really good records with but but first so he made the first mudcrutch record and then he went back with the heartbreakers and uh, made this album Mojo. So when I got with him, he explained to me how he how he made Mojo, and sort of how that came about. And it, what I pointed out to him is it's just like at the beginning of the Heartbreakers. He went from Mudcrutch to the Heartbreakers, so it was sort of a reset button. Uh, and you know, I, I think that Mudcrutch album, like everyone loved. It's great, and I thought the Mudcrutch two was great, and the tour they did it was the first was the first ever real tour was was last year. It was fantastic. They just they, they did just Mudcrutch songs, and Tom was so happy. And just uh, you know, let's let's hear Tom telling me uh, telling me about the Mojo album, and also you get a sense of just what it was like to talk to him, which is I think what's even more important than the specific album he's talking about. I knew that. Um there was something in the band that hadn't been brought out. Yeah. And that no one got to hear but me when, uh, you know, it was more an off hours kind of thing. <laughs> so I wanted to bring that out. I wanted to make a record that, you know, the records I was listening to were like, you know, the early Jeff Beck group, um, John Mayo, um, Peter Green muddy that kind of stuff so that's kind of the way I was thinking when I was writing even a little JJ Kale yeah. kind of that kind of stuff actually I went and I jammed with the Allman Brothers one night mm. and then a few days later I played with uh, JJ Kale for like an hour one night Mike and I did just like privately or no it was at McCabe's oh okay. you know, we went by and he just you yeah, know yeah. come on up and yeah. don't go and so we stayed <laughs> and we really had a glorious time playing with him so I kind of thought about you know 
this might this would be something that would really make me happy you know yeah. and I, I just went let's just play for ourselves and do what makes us happy and what feels right and so so the writing took that and then we set down some rules at the beginning about really going for as much of the record as we could in the take itself rather than say cutting a rhythm track we tried to get a performance out of every track yeah and uh, and that's the way it went you know uh, pretty much you know, that's the way it went well, so it's sort of one thing to, to have the band play like that it's another to, to write the right songs that, that can be like played that way and, I mean how, how did you kind of get to that place I just wrote you know I um, I knew I'd have to have pretty durable stuff yeah. to handle all that you know so if I got it to sound good with just me and a guitar right. I could sell the song that way then I felt really confident usually in the last Heartbreakers record you know years ago I did demos where I'd bring in a demo and everything was all arranged and you know, right and all parts yeah and they weren't too inspired by that yeah. you know because they don't want to have to play some part that's already written so I said you know I'll bring in a framework I'll play them the song on the guitar and and then just the band would fall in and then that's how we would shape it sometimes they'd fall in with exactly the right thing yeah sometimes it took a little shaping you know we'd go and listen and, and say well this could be better that could be better but really the arrangements came from the heartbreakers themselves I mean that that's the way everything was um, was made it just I would play them the song through on the guitar, and then uh, we'd just all start to play. Yeah. So, and that's how you ended up with, with Reggae and uh, Don't Pull Me Over. It, like, it just, yeah, that yeah. was just, yeah. Yeah. you know, it was really just an after the end of the right. session kind of thing that I wasn't really taken too seriously. I don't think anybody else really... There were a few like that. And uh, we really started having such a good time recording that we finally had to just force ourselves to pull the plug on the thing wow. you know, because it could have just gone on and on and on and I thought well <laughs> you know we're so hot I hate to stop but we had so much material mounting up so uh, it was very enjoyable just a great time playing and and everyone was in a good mood and don't think we, we didn't have any fights or just not a sour word, you know. And I think everyone was really committed to this kind of music. I mean, it's interesting that you know you, you came just as when you first started the Heartbreakers, you came from uh, from Mugcrutch. Uh, did that was that some kind of like reset button for you? Was it allowed you to rethink the way they might approach things? It certainly was. That's a good way to put it. It was a reset. Because that album, you know, I, I got that album done and I thought, shit, this is one of my favorite records I ever made in yeah. my life. And it was just, uh, that was made in about two weeks. Two weeks, you know. And I thought, you know, I want to I wanna get back to 
concert just performing in the studio like say we would on stage if if we go to play this stuff on stage we can exactly recreate it right it's right it's, it's just six guys playing right so you couldn't do this kind of record like that without a unit like that that can really communicate with each other without talking too much you know there wasn't a lot said really other than you know let's let's put a verse here or let's repeat that chorus or whatever you know they just kind of instinctually know where to go and my other thought up front was I really want to push Mike up to the front of the record yeah because I mean I don't know if there's another guitar player any better than that yeah and I want him to get up front and make it a guitar record. I don't want any harmony singing on the record. Mm. There's never a harmony. And that was the kind of record I wanted to right. make. You know. In uh, 2015, after that, that terrible murder at an African-American church, um, series of murders, uh, you know, the, the Confederate flag went down in South Carolina. Um, and then there was... a lot of talk about the confederate flag and tom petty had used the confederate flag right Andy? yeah it was on his southern accents tour of 1985 which was sort of a concept record about the south and sort of not but for the song rebels he decided to have the flag on the stage it was a big part of the imagery of the tour and clearly it wasn't something he gave a lot of deep thought to um, also, if you you know, he perhaps wasn't like a thousand percent sober at that point in his yeah, career. Yeah, you definitely so, not. Yeah. So that can also impede one's decisions. Well, let's hear that song, Rebels, for a second before we go on. But when this controversy was raging over the Confederate flag, Tom actively sought out an interview with us, with you, right? He wanted to clarify something. Yeah, he just wanted to talk about it and to apologize. It was not something that anybody was thinking about. It was a pretty obscure moment of his career that was mostly forgotten. But he felt bad about it, and he wanted to go public with his feelings of regret. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it says a lot about him. I mean, no one was. It's not. I mean, to be very clear, no one was talking about him. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't about him. They mentioned Kid. You know, Kid Rock. I guess was like refusing to take it down. That yeah, was in the, and Skinner and that was in the news. But literally, to my knowledge, no one was even talking about him. But but he was paying attention to the news, and he felt bad, and he wanted to communicate something. And the other reason I, I thought it was a good idea to play this audio is that um, these quotes when went very viral this week in the wake of, of Tom's passing, uh, sometimes without crediting uh, Andy Green or Rolling Stone, but that's okay. But it went viral, I think, because people want to know what kind of person he was. I really think it comes down to that, and this says something about what kind of person he was. So let's hear Tom Petty talking, or really apologizing, for his use of the Confederate flag. Oh, I just want to go back and talk about your childhood a bit in Florida. Do you recall seeing the Confederate flag a lot in your earliest days, or as your in your in your childhood years, <laughs> you you can't live in the South and not see the Confederate flag mm-hmm. everywhere. Right. 
and how did you perceive it back then? When I was a child? Yeah, or like a teenager, you know. Um, I, I perceived it as just part of the wallpaper of the South, you know. It was, uh, I always thought it had something to do with the Civil War. You know, obviously it was the, the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. But the South had sort of adopted it as, you know, their, their logo. Right. <laughs> you know, that, so... I was pretty ignorant, really, of um, you know what it could mean. Right, right. As as I think most everybody was back then, at least you know. Well, yeah, it it was on the courthouse flagpole, you know. You, right. You know, so I really, honestly, didn't give it a lot of thought. I remember. Um, you know, it was in a lot of Western movies mm-hmm. and yeah, things like that, you know. And right. I didn't really give it a lot of thought in those years, to be honest. Right. I, I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and when you used it on tour in the mid-'80s, just tell me the thought process there. Uh there really was no thought. I wish there had been a thought process there. Um, it was downright a downright stupid thing to do, really. I My thought process, I guess, was I had this song called Rebels. Mm-hmm. And, and the song uh, is a character in the song, and it's, it's spoken from the character's point of view. And um, there, this character, if you know, as you go through the lyrics, especially in the last part of the song, you it just sort of examines that you know this this tradition has been handed down, you know, family to family, you know, for so long that it's almost in a way like this this guy still feels some guilt about this war. And um, it sort of ingrained itself, you know, into this character, and he he doesn't really really understand it, you know. He's still blaming um, the North for the discomfort of his life. Right. So my thought was the best way to illustrate this character was the rebel flag mm-hmm. as the song was called rebels right so i used that on stage during that song um and uh really i have always regretted it you know mm-hmm. um i i regretted it pretty quickly because I noticed um, the next tour we did, um, which was a few years later, um, I noticed people in the audience with, like, wearing Confederate bandanas, things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And one night, someone threw one on the stage, 
and uh, I stopped everything and, and gave a speech about it and said, look, this is this was just to illustrate a character. This is not who we are. And uh, after having, you know, thought this through, I would prefer that no one ever bring a Confederate flag to the shows because this, this isn't who we are. That was Tom Petty apologizing and explaining uh, his use of a Confederate flag back in 1985 to Andy. And it was an interview that kind of went everywhere because it it's really said something about Tom. He went on to express sympathy for Black Lives Matter, um, to express sympathy for states taking the flag down. He was very clear in that interview. Yeah, and about our prison system and how unjust it is. He was He was very vocal about that, too. Tom was a smart dude, I think, again people tend to underestimate the intelligence of rock stars, especially if they have like a, a cool stoned out draw and stuff. But he, he was a smart guy, a funny guy. Um, and he had a great band, by the way, he, he uh, the heartbreakers were, you know, one of those like archetypal American bands. They st- it's, it's interesting how incredible seventies bands of a particular type influenced by sixties Dylan records and, and you yeah. know, uh, other things. So I think the heartbreakers were more of a democratic band than some of those groups that Mike was exactly. involved with the, with the songwriting and the producing. He didn't see them as his backing musicians. He saw them as his band. That's a very important distinction. And, uh, you could really see it, for instance, when they backed Bob Dylan. Dylan was backed by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as a unit. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Petty was a heartbreaker, whereas Elvis was, you know, was Elvis still an attraction? Was Bruce and East Street or no? no. Yeah. So that that's the difference. Of, but at the same time, as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, it's right. a it's a confusing thing. It's a weird dynamic. And in the Warren Zanes book, he talks about how the money went from being equal to not being equal. <laughs> You know, money's a thing. Money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 2014, Andy, you talked to the Heartbreakers about their time with Tom. It was for a special edition of Rolling Stone that we're going to be reprinting about Tom. And so in this clip, you kind of you talked to Mike Campbell, uh, who is you know a spectacular guitarist and and probably an underrated one. Um, so great at using lead guitar to come up with signature moments. I mean, the, the classic one is, uh, but there's so many, is, is the introduction to Refugee. He was certainly, among other things, the king of the lead guitar intro. Yes. You know. But let's hear Mike Campbell, Tom's guitarist and long, long time songwriting partner, talk about that partnership a little bit. So tell me about the first time that you wrote a song together. Oh, okay. Um, first time we wrote a song together would be Rockin' Around With You on the first album. Mm-hmm. And I was I was just, uh, at that time, I wasn't as developed as, as a songwriter as Tom was. I guess I'm still not, but right. I was much... Uh, my input on the, at that time was I would just come up with, with guitar riffs and chords and things. And that was just something that I played in the studio one day. I had a little demo of it, I think, that I had uh, uh, messed around with. And he heard it, and he took it home. He said, oh, maybe I can write some words to this. And he came back the next day, and he'd taken a few of the extraneous chords out of it and simplified it into a nice song. And that was the first thing we wrote together. And it was it's always a thrill to write with somebody. Mm-hmm. To go back a little bit then, so why do you think Mud Crutch didn't get to to the next level and kind of break through. We, like, what prevented it from happening for the band? 
Well, um, <clears throat> I guess timing and maybe personalities and frustration over things not happening fast enough. I mean, we Mud Crutcher played around Florida for several years, and then we got a label interest from Shelter Records, Denny Cordell. We drove out to Tulsa on the way to California and met with him. And we got to California, we went in the studio, and in the studio things just seemed to grind down to a, to a halt because we didn't have any idea how to record. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we kind of got stuck trying to make a good-sounding uh, recording. Mm -hmm. And then, I guess, long story short, um, the band kind of dissolved, and Cordell decided to keep Tom as a songwriter. And Tom said, you know, I want Mike with me and Ben because uh, he felt an affinity to, to us. And so he, we, we kind of just tagged along on his songwriting skill for, for a little while there. And then the, slowly the Heartbreakers got together. So it was really just a matter of getting fed up with each other and not getting the results we wanted fast enough. Mm -hmm. you know. Now, did any part of you mind that you were going from a member of a band with him to being sort of not his backing band, but Tom Petty mm -hmm. and, I mean, did that bother you at all, that sort of if that the dynamic was kind of changing? Um, did it bother me? Um, maybe on a small level at the beginning, because we started out as, uh, you know, sharing every dollar mm -hmm. as a group, you know, like a total democracy. But, uh, so we first decided, well, you know, this is Tom's, Tom's going to keep the record deal. And, it's, and we're going to call the band, you know, with his name in front. At first, maybe there was a little bit of twinge of, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not the way I'm used to doing things. Mm -hmm. But when I step back out of my ego and look at it, it's like, well, you know, he's writing the songs, he's singing, you know, and he's the leader of the band, you know, mm -hmm. and he's kind of the driving force behind it. So, you know, I don't know, I guess it was a small twinge at the beginning, and then I just thought, well, fuck, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to be in this band, and I don't really, I don't want to be the front guy. Right. So, and this is my buddy, I trust him. You know, there's never any like, well, this guy's going to take all the money and rip me off. I never had that vibe at all. It was always like, well, he's the leader of the group, put his name on there. Right, right. And uh, it turned out to be a pretty, pretty wise choice, and he's been a great leader. And uh, I've never, you know, since, like, like I said, at first it was like, well, this is what things are going to be now, and I accepted it. Mm -hmm. And I've never really had a problem with it since then. And so what impressed you about him as a songwriter back then? Well, he had a knack, and he still has a knack for writing simple things um, that a lot of people can relate to. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's something you can learn. Lord knows I've been trying to learn it. Um, uh, but he, he just has an affinity for finding a simple lyric, a simple melody, um, that is instantly identifiable with, with, you know, a lot of different people. And also, I mean, I liked the roots he was drawing from, which were the same roots I was drawing from, the birds, the beetles, the stones. I mean, I just understood what he was trying to do. Yeah. And I really felt like, you know, I, I, can, I can help this. You yeah. know, I can add to this. I mean, and, it, uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting. It was a time of punk and whatnot, but you guys were going back about 10 years to birds and stuff, which wasn't too cool at the time. Yeah, well, we've never really joined any clubs. You know, like in Florida, too, when we were playing a lot, it was all, you know, Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers blues bands, and we were kind of like an anomaly because that wasn't really 
the roots were drawn from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I love those bands, but we were more in a, in a uh, the English groups and stuff kind of made more of an impression on us, and that's maybe the, the stuff that we were drawing from uh, stylistically. Right. And so we always kind of stood out a little bit then, too, and then, then the whole new wave thing, the punk thing. Well, we didn't really fit into that either, but, you know, we've never really fit into any of these bags, really. You know, right. new wave, disco, grunge. I mean, we're our, kind of our own, we're just a rock and roll band. Yeah. We've kind of been able to just kind of establish our own, you know, turf without joining any clubs. Right. Some of the press backs then, they'd call you guys new wave, which that never struck me as very accurate. <laughs> Well, the best quote I remember from that era was somebody said, well, asked Tom, are you a punk? He said, call me a punk, I'll cut you. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek, like, come on, man. You know, are you a punk? What's a punk? You know, like, do you like the music or not? Right. (laughs) Now, did you see American Girl at the time you cut it as sort of a cut above the other songs of that era, and that was a song that could maybe work on the radio? No. We were, I mean... Did anything would work on the radio or yeah. cut above? No. We mm-hmm. didn't think like that. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to make something good. Now, with American Girl, I mean, I never knew it would make it to the radio. I never knew that I'd still be playing it 40 years later and enjoying it, you know, in front of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Right. But what I did know is that there was something about the sound of that song, mm-hmm. the way it was written and the way we recorded it, and the, the, the guitar sounds that we came up with and the feel of it that was ours yeah you know i felt like this sounds this is a really cool thing it doesn't sound to me it doesn't sound like anybody else i mean yeah. you can tell it's influenced by the birds or whatever it might be but mm-hmm. this is something that's really ours you know yeah and that i remember after that this song's like this is the kind of vibe we want to go for because this is what is identifies us at our best you know they were happy to talk about their lives as heartbreakers right they they were and it's really sad to think about it they they were loved their role as heartbreakers yeah and that was a huge part of their life if you think of mike campbell he'd been playing with tom's it was steady work from 1972 until last week i mean it's crazy to think about that but it's one of the longest lasting partnerships that's those guys i'm sure are are beyond devastated as is Stevie Nicks, you know, who was kind of an, an honorary heartbreaker. Yeah. And and and, and, um, and many, many, many other people, Bob Dylan and, and friends yeah, we don't and even know about. The band was around him at the hospital when he passed away. And it was seven days, almost to the hour, after their show ended at the Hollywood Bowl, a, a few miles away from there. So just devastating to think about how quickly in seven days it, it can go from such euphoria to yeah. this horrible tragedy. I mean, if if you want to try to flip it around, it like at least you know he literally went up almost to the end playing rock and roll, and I'm sure he would have wanted it that way. We are about to be joined by Warren Zanes, who wrote Petty the biography, a, a truly definitive and very well done biography of Tom Petty, and is also really his friend. Warren, are you there? I am here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here. Uh, how have you been coping emotionally with what must have been incredibly shocking and upsetting news? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it came out of nowhere. I really, I'd already put my money down for the next four Tom Petty records. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, I just wasn't expecting anything like this, uh, and my mind immediately went to. 
you know, we've got this artist who is identified by something unusual, which is a four-decade career. Mm. But a lot of the people in and around him, you know, in that in the band, in the management, on the crew, have been there for almost the whole ride. And I, I can only imagine, you know, they haven't they haven't trained for anything else. Yeah, and it all hinged on this this one guy. Um, starting a ball rolling that then they all push together and I, I just can't imagine what everybody's going through yeah we, we've had similar discussions when you began work on this book um, it became clear that Tom from my understanding Tom was ready to let you go anywhere he encouraged you to kind of ask anything and go deep um, why do you think he wanted his story told kind of in a, a warts and all deep revealing fashion i think that's the very question he asked himself <laughs> when it became a reality um but but why i you know i think that he this is an artist who has never sold himself has never mythologized himself has never gone out and done the kind of promotion that some people never stop uh He's always let the songs do the work, but as a result, he had a legion of fans who wanted to know more. And I think in doing the documentary with Peter Bogdanovich, he came out the other side going, that covered a lot of bases, but a movie can't do what a book can do, and let's continue the process that we've embarked on and do a book also. And in a lot, a lot of these artists, you know, they were looking at uh, these long careers. It's, it's just like the Neil Youngs and the Bob Dylans started doing uh, releases of earlier live shows, um, retakes on earlier releases. They had to begin thinking of themselves um, more historically rather than what's my next record and then what's the record after that. Tom carried himself in a different way than other legends sort of of his stature, you know. So yeah, how, how does yeah. that relate to kind of how he saw himself in the Pantheon and the way he kind of treated his his legend and his fame and his status? Well, I don't think he did treat his legend, fame, and status. Huh. I mean, and I, I think uh, not that he neglected it, because in making himself available to you, as you say, he was tending to it. Mm. But I, I think he, he really, like, born and raised in the album cycle, and his eyes were just always on that next record. So he didn't ever sit back in a big upholstered chair and say, you know, damn, it's a sweet life being Tom Petty. It's good uh, to be the king, yeah. He wasn't that kind of guy. He was, he, was, he was very unpretentious, and maybe to his own detriment, he let an album mattered to him for about three months, and then he was only as good as what was coming next. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I, I read the Rick Rubin piece that, was, that you guys put up online, and you know, Rick Rubin saying that, that Tom was afraid of wildflowers hmm. because it hit such a high mark. I thought that was very interesting, and I think that is a symptom of what we're talking about, that... He's thinking about, how am I going to top this? How am I going to make this thing take a new shape? So he's not 
doing the thing that many of us might do in his position, which is to say, I've created this remarkable catalog. Um, I'm going to roll one big joint, uh, <laughs> sit in the shade, and see how many people are playing it on their boom boxes. <laughs> he, he was known to roll a joint or two, though. I, I, I did hear that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, uh, probably the biggest quote-unquote revelation in your book, although some of us had some wind of it, is that, you know, he, he did have a period of heroin use, which he, he clearly was uh, far from proud of. And uh, was he perhaps ambivalent about you including that in the book and, and making that known to the world? Well, the way that I came into that knowledge was when I put together the book there was a companion book to the Peter Bogdanovich documentary, Running Down a Dream. Uh, it was in the transcripts that he had talked about it in the interviews. And it was in an earlier cut of that movie. And then Tom went, you know, I don't want to take the gamble and find that even one kid romanticized heroin use because Tom Petty did heroin. And, and they pulled it out of the movie. And so when I was putting the book together, I'm, I'm reading this, and it was a very forthcoming interview he did with Peter. And, you know, a few years later, we're talking about the book, and, and I said, you know, there's really no understanding. Wildflowers, Echo, your divorce, your relationship to all that would follow after Echo, without understanding the heroin use. It's, yeah. it's, it's, an, it's an incomplete story, and I think readers don't know uh, on, a, on an overt level when a story's incomplete, but they intuit that it's incomplete. And that does no justice to a book. And I just assured him that there's a way to talk about using heroin that is not an advertisement for drug use. And just I, I held to that, and I think it was crucial. Of course, it became a kind of headline once the book came. We, you know, you can't step out of a tabloid world. We live in it, For and sure. that means you know whether it's a tabloid or not. You know, it was it was the Washington Post who kind of broke that story. You know, they're not considered a tabloid, but we all live in that world. We all live in the headline world. We all live in the, the Twitter world, and it was just like, this is going to happen. Yeah, tell me about it. It's a headline, so, you know? So, so uh, Warren, in, in just the couple minutes we have left, uh, you know, I, I, I would just ask you to address the, you know, there's been such an outpouring of reaction, and you're someone who is so familiar with, with Tom and so familiar with the sort of body of critical thought about him. What kind of surprised you or, or, or took you back or pleased you or displeased you about the way that people are assessing him this week and and, and, uh, and, and mourning him as well? Well, I, I like to think that we're at the beginning of uh, a larger reassessment because I, I have never felt that Tom Petty got his due. He got plenty of accolades. Um, I think the real... The real uh, kind of testament to what he means in popular music is that Bob Dylan and George Harrison and Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and Del Shannon, all these guys went and knocked on his door. Yeah. They got it. I feel like from this point forward, 
other people are going to get it at that level. Um, but he had so many singles and so many hits that that kept the critics from backing him in the way that he deserved to be backed. But I feel like it's similar with you know an artist like Hank Williams, if you know Hey Good Looking, um, you're going to have a good time with that song, but at a certain point you're going to go, is there other stuff there? And you begin digging and you go, well, holy crap, there's a lot there. And the same will happen with Petty because he was, he took the message that the Beatles, you know, inexplicitly de- delivered, which was every album counts and every song on every album counts. Yeah, and uh, Tom Petty embodied that as much as anyone. Warren Zanes, thank you so much for joining us. Your book, Petty the Biography, is all the more essential now. So you've been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We were talking about the life of music of Tom Petty. We'll be back next week at 1 p.m. on volume here on Sirius XM, channel 106. In the meantime, download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And try to leave us a nice review on iTunes. Have a great week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.